The other thing that we want to make you aware of is that in the podcast, we often invite in special guests. So we're thrilled this week to have sat down with E.J. Wagner, who's a crime historian, a lecturer, and a teller of suspense stories for adults. Uh, She's also the author of The Science of Sherlock Holmes, a book about the history of forensic science. We sit there with a trial transcript that's maybe 150 years old. It's very often very dry, but it's like a time capsule, because if you read the witnesses' responses to the questions, you get a very complicated and detailed account of what life was like in those days how they got up in the morning, how they dressed, what they made for breakfast, what they ate, how many times the maid climbed the stairs, all this sort of thing. You get a very vivid picture of it, uh, and in minuscule detail. We sat down with EJ for a conversation where she shares her love of Sherlock Holmes and and provides insight into how Sherlock Holmes' stories actually influence forensics the way we know them today. I was writing uh, some presentations that involved a murder, and a pathologist cousin of mine invited me to the New York City Medical Examiner's Office to see how autopsies were performed. And I became extremely fascinated, and I just kept going back, and I kind of learned on the job. So at Stony Brook University, uh, had an outreach program where the idea was that I would get people who didn't think they were interested in science to come into the Museum of Long Island Natural Sciences and present uh, a scientifically oriented but exciting storytelling program. Uh, People would come to the museum and and become more involved. And we did one on witchcraft, and we did one on werewolves, lycanthropy, you know, shape-shifting. And finally, I persuaded them to let me do one on forensic science. This was before it was wildly popular. And we sold out. And uh, the first program was called The Subject is Murder. And it turned out that a lot of people from the crime laboratory out here came to hear me and invited me to do research at their shop. And so we eventually established what was called the Forensic Forum, which meant that a couple of times a year I would present an old crime and someone from the crime lab would present a similar crime from the modern period and we would compare how they were solved and the similarities and the differences. And it became um, sort of a thing to do. And there were a lot of family programs grew out of it, one called uh, Crime Laboratory, where we would give every, each group a sack of evidence and a script, and they would have to solve the crime. They learned how to use microscopes and magnifying glasses. And one program was called um, The Science of Sherlock Holmes, because I thought Sherlock Holmes was this great jumping-off place. And so shortly after that, I got an email from um, an editor at John Wiley and Sons, saying, how would I like to write a book called The Science of Sherlock Holmes? That sounded pretty good to me. So I wrote the book, which kind of evolved out of these classes I'd been teaching. And uh, it won an Edgar Award, and it got translated into about nine languages. So I was very happy. And Mr. Holmes and I have been very good friends ever since. We sit there with a trial transcript that's maybe 150 years old, It's very often very dry, but it's like a time capsule, because if you read the witnesses' responses to the questions, you get a very complicated and detailed account of what life was like in those days, 
how they got up in the morning, how they dressed, what they made for breakfast, what they ate, how many times the maid climbed the stairs, all this sort of thing. You get a very vivid picture of it uh, and in minuscule detail. I'm always comparing what was happening in court with what the newspapers were reporting with what we knew of the science at the time. And very often, the science they were relying on has since been found to be faulty. Great argument, for instance, at one point, I guess it must have been late 19th century, about whether or not the hair and skin and nails continue to grow after death. There were a number of very well-known physicians who wrote very firmly they do. We know now that this is not true at all. I mean, we've experimented repeatedly. There's no question that what happens actually is the skin contracts after death as it dries, and it appears that the nails are longer, and it appears that the beard has grown, but it's an illusion. And when this was used as evidence to identify a body, you know, he didn't have a beard, now he does, it's the wrong person, that kind of thing, it can have devastating results. And of course, what is distressing sometimes is when you read the trial transcript and you realize that the person who was convicted could really not have done it because the science was wrong. And there's not much you can do about it now since they were hanged 100 years ago. Oh, it can become very emotionally disturbing. What I'm doing essentially is looking at old cases and saying, well, what do they have to say to us now? Occasionally, you know, one of the guys in the crime lab will call me up and say, oh, I have to do a presentation about such and such. Do you have an old case that's anything like it? And you know what? I just about always do. It's kind of like if you've got the time, I've got the crime. They, it just doesn't change that much. What changes is our way of examining it. It's usually it's money or it's sex or it's envy or it's just plain evil. Well, the book was not, was not just about Holmes, but his science. In other words, what he did was to take scientific reasoning, critical reasoning, and what we knew of science in those days, and apply it to criminal investigation. Because up until that point, it was really just a physical matter of you grabbed the person you thought did it, and you, you locked him up or you hanged him or something. Um, but the idea, just the concept of looking at a crime scene very carefully, labeling everything, making a diagram of everything, knowing where everything was, and then reasoning from that gradually by both deductive and inductive reasoning, coming to a conclusion. This was just a new thing. There was um, a famous scientist in Graz, Austria. Um, he actually was not a scientist. He was a, he, his degree was in law, but he applied scientific reasoning to it. His name was Hans Gross. And he was writing at the same time in German, about many of the same ideas that Sherlock Holmes then uh, made popular in London. And what Holmes really accomplished was to make the idea of scientific approach to crime solving understandable to people, uh, middle class people who were reading these books for pleasure. And of course, that meant that t people could be ta were willing to pay taxes to support such a thing as a crime lab. There actually there was no crime laboratory at Scotland Yard until the 1930s. It just didn't exist. Uh, it, it was um, something that some certain individual investigators were uh, were making use of, but there was no organized laboratory. Scotland Yard was kind of all over the place. The British people for a long time had resisted any kind of organized police force 
because they felt that it was limiting their individual liberties. And they had thief takers who essentially were hired privately to try to solve a crime and then would be paid with part of the what, the money that was recovered. Uh, one of them, as a matter of fact, Jonathan Wilde, kind of went into business for himself, causing the crime and then solving it. He had quite a business going before they caught him. When the home stories became popular, you know, there was a fascination among people reading it. They they couldn't wait for the next installment. What was going to happen next? It was only a hop, skip, and a jump from there to expecting their police force to be able to do it. Fingerprinting, for instance, was only accepted in London around uh, 1902, even though there had, it had been written about before in Europe. Central Europe, uh, Austria, Hungary, was far ahead of Britain. The big forensic laboratory in France didn't open until 1910. This is all relatively recent. And in those days, it was very much a generalist field. What we call forensic science was then referred to as medical jurisprudence. And it was a subsidiary of um, other medical practice. In this country, in America, for instance, uh, it was very often a little footnote at the bottom of a book on obstetrics and gynecology, because one of the first cases that grabbed everyone's attention, one of the big issues, was whether or not a child had been stillborn or had been born alive and murdered. And so there was a great deal of research done on that by gynecologists and midwives. So it was a very sporadic kind of thing. Uh, one, there were people like George Pop over in Germany who were doing research on ballistics, and there was somebody in Hungary who was doing research on uh, determining time of death. But it was the Holmes books which popularized it and made it understandable to people who were not scientists, and they thought, well, you know, that is a great idea. Why don't, why don't we have a lab like that in London? And eventually they did. When you go into a crime scene, you are trying to construct a narrative of what probably happened. The problem is that if you fall too much in love with your story, you twist the facts to make them fit, as Holmes pointed out very often. You know, you've got to have data, data, data. You, his, his whole emphasis was on don't twist the facts to fit your story. The story has to follow the facts. So it's a certain form of narrative um, that crime solving involves. And as we see all too often, when an investigator falls too much in love with a preconceived notion, somehow evidence disappears or it's misinterpreted or it's mislaid, or the prosecutor didn't mention it to the defense attorney at discovery, and all the sort of thing goes awry. So it's a kind of bad storytelling, which we really have to avoid if we don't want to continue to lock up and execute innocent people. You must always be open to re-examination to reevaluate your conclusion. <laughs> Learn now, my sons, the tale of the coming of the Hound of the Baskervilles. In the time of the Great Rebellion of 1641, 
The manor of Baskerville in the county of Devonshire was held by Hugo of that name, the most wild, profane, and godless man. Quiet! One Michaelmas, this Hugo stole down upon a local farm and carried off a young maiden to Baskerville Hall. I'm very fond of The Hound of the Baskervilles simply because it starts out as this drenched in superstition thing and it turns out at the end that there is a reasonable explanation for it. Now, I know you read it today and very often it can seem very obvious, but when it was written, it wasn't obvious. When it was written, these superstitions were still very much alive in the land. There is a tradition of black dog stories in the British Isles, and uh, the black dog is very often represented as a fetch, a creature that appears to someone who is about to die, and the black dog leads him to this terrible appointment with his own mortality. So I was fascinated to discover that uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, of course, is typical of it. But in as recent as 1945, there was a case in England which um, involved black dogs and where the people who lived in this town simply did not want to discuss it with Scotland Yard because they were much too concerned and too frightened uh, of this legend becoming true. It was a tremendous amount of superstition. There were beliefs in werewolves very seriously. And one of the things that finally convinced people that, you know, uh, the kind of serial killing where you found a lot of bloody children, for instance, with no particular reason that you could discover for the crime, uh, was not a matter of a mad dog or a werewolf. It was a human being who uh, was so severely damaged. And that was discovered simply because they were able to determine the difference between human blood and animal blood. Because the the criminal, you know, charged with why are there stains all over you and you've been in the neighborhood where we've had these unaccountable crimes, the, the usual thought, well, that that's wood stain. I was I was um, painting my dining room table, but once you could prove it wasn't a wood stain, once you could prove it was blood, and then further on you could prove that it was human blood, not animal blood. This was an enormous change, and of course Holmes talks about this in his stories. He talks about having discovered a uh, test for hemoglobin. There were a number of primitive tests for blood, but they were very difficult to accomplish. And it was much later that we we learned to do it with accuracy. Once we did, a whole bunch of things became obvious. Once we discovered that bullets, for instance, as they go through a gun, pick up little twists and turns that make them individuals, so that it is possible with skill to match a gun to the bullet and vice versa. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of crimes which seemed inexplicable were clear. People began to think about this very differently, not to mention all the inspiration it gave to crime writers. Sherlock Holmes is a terrific learning tool. I'm very glad to know that people are coming back to it and reading it more. Some of the stories are stronger than others. Some of them are more scientifically organized than others. But what I love about Conan Doyle is that he has this this subtle wit and warmth about him. It's not only about science, it's also about the friendship between Holmes and Watson. This sort of ambiguous relationship where Watson is always going off with his wife, or one of several wives that he evidently has, but he always comes back to this friendship 
And this is the thing that sort of holds these people together. It's very interesting to me. I think it's perfectly lovely that people feel so engaged by this character after all these years. I think certainly Sherlock Holmes and Watson together was sort of the prototype for many, many detective novels ever since. Special thanks to E.J. Wagner for joining us this week. For more information on her work, you can visit ejdissectingroom.wordpress.com. That's ejdissectingroom.wordpress.com. And make sure to check out her book, The Science of Sherlock Holmes. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you next week.